there's a lot of good intentions. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to do the wrong thing. I really do believe that. It's not a one-off conversation. It's not one meeting. It's not one training session. We have to be relentless and consistent. Hi, I'm Natasha Tony, and you're listening to Narrative Shift. It's always a treat to sit down with Prem Gill. Along with being a collaborator of mine, Prem is the Chief Executive Officer of Creative BC, British Columbia's main funding supporter for the province's creative industries. Prem's expertise doesn't start and end with Creative BC, though. She spent almost a decade working with TELUS and their seed program, Story Hive, and she sits on the board of directors for Bell's Creative Media Fund. Through these roles and more, Prem has dedicated her career to ensuring that a mosaic of creative voices are given the money they need to tell their stories. Here's my conversation with Prem. Hi, Prem. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Hi, Natasha. Yeah, great to see you. It's good Uh, to see you. Great to spend time. I think that for you and I, we don't get to spend a lot of time together, and so... Being in conversation and talking about leadership and what that means, but also your journey to where you're at and specifically talking about creative BC and culture shift within the creative industries. And so first off, how would you like to introduce yourself? Well, I'm uh, privileged to be a friend of Natasha Tony's and to collaborate and work together in a variety of things over the course of, I would say, the last seven, eight years. But my day job is I am the CEO of an organization called Creative BC, and we are here to support the development of British Columbia's creative industries. And we have... We work across the country with organizations as well in partnership and around the world, really. And I have the privilege of leading this organization and work with many fine people. And I would say we are in a an era of ongoing growth and development and, as my friend Natasha Tony likes to say, a learning journey. <laughs> That's right. And I think that part of even thinking about doing this podcast was that on our learning journey, there's an opportunity to really talk about how we do this work in a good way. And I think that there's a personal piece here that I'd like to move in and we'll explore Creative BC. But there's also, you know, you are a leader of this organization. Um, You're having conversations, as you say, across Canada and internationally in doing this work. But it's not lost on me that you're also a racialized woman who has been doing this work in media for a very long time. And I'm curious about where you grew up, what shaped how you see the world, and what brought you into this work as well. Well, uh, many different experiences and things. And it wasn't, you know, it's interesting for me. Sometimes people think that this was my end goal. It never was. In fact, I didn't even know what that would look like. So I think that's part of something that everybody can always think about, what you You can't fully design what's going to happen for yourself, whether it's personally or professionally or in any aspect of your life. And I think once you kind of let go of some of that, things actually do start to happen. And I think for me, I'm the child of immigrants from India, the first person born in Canada in my family, 
And the eldest of four kids grew up in an extended family where my parents had a duplex with my grandparents next door. And my dad was the eldest of seven and his younger siblings all lived next door to us. And they went to university and college and got married and went on with their own lives. My parents, in fact, still live in that house, as does my grandfather next door. And he's 96 years old. So oh, I love that. So, you know, that was obviously a very formative part of my life was having a lot of people, a lot of adults around who really thought they knew what was best. Maybe it's something a lot of kids of immigrants, because your parents come to a country like Canada or the UK where they went before they came to Canada because they want something different for you socioeconomically than maybe you would have experienced in the country where they were from and education-wise and all of those things. So they have a real direction they want to set for you. I struggled with it, right? It was like... I didn't get married when I was supposed to. I went to university. I did all those things, but I didn't study science. I didn't study business. I did a degree in communications at SFU, which was like not a thing that anybody really paid any attention to. It was like this, what is that? What are you doing with that? This was in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s. So all of those things in reflection now, I understand like how they kind of shape who I am and the position I hold in certain experiences I continue to have. Those early experiences of the dynamics of a family structure, of what school was like, of the different demographics that I grew up around in terms of both age. You know, I had aunts and uncles, I had younger siblings, and I had grandparents. But even in school, our neighbors were also kids of immigrants from Croatia and Italy and Hong Kong and South Korea. So it's sort of, you know, a really shapes perspective. But at the same time, I always saw like Charlie's Angels ah, and yes. what was in the media, right? Yeah. So it wasn't until I was in high school that I was like, we, I went to a high school that was very close to SFU and Burnaby. So we were always invited up for things. And I remember somehow I got my hands on the school catalog, the course catalog. And I never really knew. I was like, I guess I'll have to go into business. Like all my aunts and uncles sure. did business degrees or engineering. And I didn't have that aptitude academically to think about science or didn't want to or math or anything like that. So I read the description for communications. I was like, wow, I've never heard of this. And it started me on this journey of thinking about, oh, like you can actually be part of the media. You can be part of the discourse. And that's really, I feel like I had the best experience in university where it was actually like kind of that liberal arts, what university is supposed to be, or I thought it was, I didn't realize that was part of it, is going and having these conversations and learning about feminism and, you know, women's studies, like all these things I had no idea about. I think that for me, thinking about my own journey and where I'm at, that pop culture, music, hip-hop, television, that was something that was big for me and really kind of allowed for me to think about the possibilities of being in the entertainment industry. I think that was something for me very early on I knew that I wanted to do and I thought maybe I would be in front of the camera and was for about five minutes, but it doesn't actually, auditions don't pay for mm -hmm. diapers mm -hmm. and I was a, a young solo parent. But what I learned uh, very much early on was that there were just so many possibilities within the entertainment industry. And, and when you talk about communications, it's so broad that you could find mm -hmm. your way in. And so what was that journey of finding your way into media? Yeah, really, it's really interesting what you just said about those influences. So, you know, for me, I guess I always just thought news, 
journalism was a way. Like that's where you saw maybe a few people of color that was serious business was journalism. So it was like, okay, what does that look like? How do you get into being a newscaster or something like that? But it was after I finished university and I went on a trip to Europe and my trip ended in in the UK visiting my cousin in London and then going and seeing my uh, mum's sister and cousins and family in the Midlands in Derby. And that was the time, it was 1993, I think, 93, 94. And that was a time when there was bands like Corner Shop. There was this probably name that is not acceptable today, but this Indian singer named Apache Indian. And he was hosting dance parties in the UK for underage South Asian kids to go and have like dance parties during the daytime because they weren't allowed out at night. There was Hanif Qureshi and My Beautiful Laundrette. There was Gurinder Chada and Budgie on the Beach. And she later went on to make, you know, Bend It Like Beckham. And there was something happening in the UK, which I was like, why is that not happening in Canada? Yes. Because, of course, there was no internet for us to be able to search for these things. It was a discoverability was came out about in a different way. And my brother was really into music. So discovering all this music and bands through him and then coming back to Canada and being like, OK, well, that we got to like, how do we become part of this. Why don't we have that in our country? And then really trying to find ways to discover it that, oh, there were a few writers. We were just trying to discover a place for not non-stereotypical things about who we were, where we came from, and what our interests were that weren't just what, I guess, was dictated by the culture we both grew up in, but also the dominant culture we lived in. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think that was one thing, too, for myself. I started it was a casting assistant for a little bit of time. So I went behind the scenes and then was an extras casting director. And all of a sudden, my world opened up because I got to collaborate with the director. Yes, there was the economic piece of it because, you know, there were budgets. But I got to create these worlds that we got to see on television. And I think that part of why I was so successful was that I was able to bring in what I wanted to see and to create, there was a lot of observing of worlds that perhaps I wished to be in that I didn't see growing up or experiencing. And I remember when you're talking about that trip and the music and what was happening and what we were watching, I remember it was Easter 1986 and my sister and I were sent to Philadelphia to my dad's family and we'd reconnected. Again, another long story, but... It was two weeks, and hip-hop was happening. I was hanging out with cousins my age. I didn't get to hang out with a lot of African-American kids. I was kind of going through some transition time as a 16-year-old, and it just shaped everything. And when you say there wasn't the internet, but there was music videos mm -hmm. yes. that were happening. Yes. And so that opened up the world and the possibilities. And so music and creativity mm -hmm. and storytelling has been this lifelong lifeline, mm -hmm. really, mm -hmm. as this shapes the work that we do and kind of moving into different forms within the entertainment industry. I think where we've connected was behind the scenes workplace in switching careers to do training and, and to work in the industry in a different way and to engage in conversations around 
culture shift. And perhaps I was doing culture shift through respectful workplace, through occupational health and safety, psychological health, which has now turned, I would say, in the last three or four years into really talking about culture shift. And that's where we reconnected Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. a way that the creative industries is doing some really interesting work. I want to hear from you, I think from Creative BC perspective, but then if you can broaden that mm-hmm. into what you're seeing when we talk about culture shift within creative industries, because there's so many storytellers out there that now have an opportunity to have their stories told. Yeah, there's a lot happening and there's there's not enough happening, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and there's always that frustration where we're not moving fast enough. I wanted to work in media in Vancouver. I graduated from university, had no experience, but I went and I did information interviews, we used to call them, at different media companies or at news TV stations, radio stations. And I remember several people telling me, well, you should go work at the multicultural television station, obviously, right? And I was like, okay, fine, I'll do that. I didn't take it as a, I'm okay, they're trying to oppress me because I didn't really understand that or at that time. Right. But I was the, like the segregation piece is what you're talking segregation, about. That's like what you it could is. only if you want to do this work, go work yeah, so I was with like, people that look like exactly. you. Exactly. So I did. So I went and I volunteered at a South Asian radio station and I did a little radio show, did a little bit of TV, I ended up working for a company that wasn't South Asian owned, but they did documentary work because I wanted to see stories like mine, about people like me, about things that were not in mainstream. And I, and I always remember thinking, this is such a massive like business opportunity. There are millions of us out there who are not seeing our stories and are not represented in front of, behind the camera, in all kinds of media. So why would they not invest in this? I just remember being very bewildered by that. Like, sure. this is kind of a no-brainer and selling the business case for it, right? Because that wasn't there, quote unquote, because it wasn't seen as a valued demographic of people who deserved their own, that that they would consume things that were different than what was just, why don't they just want the mainstream? Well, you know what? We kind of want both. Like we wanted to participate in both. So the shift that's happened in terms of who's telling stories, the ability to be able to access. So I think that was always part of it is how do you access in 2004, I think it was 2005, I worked at City TV in Vancouver, and we started a program for what we then called Visible Minority Filmmakers to make their first short films. Mm -hmm. Because, and I'm telling you, this is the same conversation we're still having. How do we help people make their first piece of whatever to get the inroads to doing that? So... They made short films that we would broadcast. One of those filmmakers was a woman named Julia Kwan. She went on to make a feature called Even the Fire Horse soon after that. That's right. So for me, that was the first time it's like, okay, you know, if I'm not actually going to be the creator myself, how do I do things that enable other creators to tell their stories? Would that, I felt like it was kind of my secret plan in the back of my mind to support racialized and indigenous and black creators in being able to access these programs. And then when I was, at, I then went on many years later, I worked at TELUS and we created this thing called Story Hive that has now taken on a life of its own. And it did, it is, it has done that. So many people I meet are like, I got a Story Hive grant. That was the first time I made a film. And that's where there are a lot of opportunities to get in and do your first thing. But I think about how do we actually support and ladder people through the ecosystem? Because you can get, there are opportunities to get your first thing done or to connect as an emerging filmmaker. But 
what's the pathway to have a career in this? And I think that's where we are going through that culture shift, that there's actually a focus on the longevity of careers, of opportunities that aren't just one-offs or that you just don't go from grant to grant, that you actually learn the business side of it. So that's where I think a lot about these things. And I agree that there is the emerging piece of it, but we do need to have, and you hear me talk about the sustainability piece of it. And when I think about progress and retrenchment, of checking off the box of, you know, a lot of initiatives that we're seeing over even these last three years of this resurgence of a certain amount of money. And I think to put it in perspective that there's the pandemic money, Mm -hmm. there was an awareness, I think, um, that happened in 2020, May specifically, 25th, 2020, when George Floyd was murdered. There was the Black Square that came up June 2nd that was talking about the inequities for Black musicians, I think Mm -hmm, mm African-American musicians. And then there was the conversation where, you know, the access shifted and we started talking about being performative and within the creative industries and really having to examine what does it mean to be performative and what does it mean to be transformative. Mm -hmm. When I think about progress and retrenchment, when we talk about building sustainable ways of creating pathways Mm -hmm. for folks who have been historically excluded from storytelling, I want to talk to you about that. I want to talk to you about, you know, how do we ensure that we're not being performative? Yeah. And I think it's, there's a lot of good intentions. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to do the wrong thing. I really do believe that, that people are coming into it sometimes hesitant, sometimes afraid, which can be paralyzing for some folks. We have to be relentless and consistent. It's not a one-off conversation. It's not one meeting. It's not one training session. You know, you mentioned Black Square Day. You and I talked that day because I was like, what is happening? Like, I'm getting, you know, pressure from my team saying we should be putting up a Black Square. I'm like, hold on. What are we doing here? What is, like, what is a Black Square going to do if we're not doing anything after that? And I think that was a conversation many people were having at that time because it's more than a black square doesn't solve the systemic issues and problems and challenges that have existed, not just in our industry, but in the culture that we've all grown up in. It's particularly here in North America in a a way that maybe isn't experienced in the same way in other countries. And, you know, the sustainability of it is more people walking in partnership and in collaboration, which that sometimes means we have to step back. And I'm talking particularly about working with Indigenous colleagues, other racialized colleagues, Black colleagues, and actually stepping back and taking other people's lead. And I think that is when you have been in a position where you are constantly trying to prove that you should be the lead Mm -hmm. or you should be a leader or that you should be accepted as a leader, actually consciously taking time to step back to see what happens when others lead on this, who are from communities of people that were not part of the conversations, you actually do learn a lot. And it actually makes it stronger and more sustainable. Yeah. And I think that this is where even learning for myself, being raised up in dominant culture, how much my own perfectionism, my own performance, even, you know, this backfire effect where I need to have everything 
mapped out. I need to have build the business case. I need to have plan A, B, and C because I'm ready for that bias, whether it's gender or anti-black racism or whatever that bias is that I have experienced over time. I always have different ways of uh, proving that I am valuable and worthwhile, that I know what I'm talking about through lived experience, through my education, through all of that. And I I know there was a a director talking about that herself when we were studying bias. And the backfire effect is something for her that she realizes why it happens, that she is um, seen sometimes as even aggressive because I don't want to give any more than I've already given. And then realizing, oh, they were just asking me the proper spelling of my name for this credit, right? There's Mm -hmm. this way that sometimes we also are so busy proving ourselves that there's also an opportunity for us to say, oh, okay, I've made it. Let me open this door, Mm -hmm. trust that somebody can hold this, and I'm here to support. And I see that you're doing that at Creative BC in the work that you're doing. I also think that people think the creative industries should be better than other businesses when it comes to ah. equity, ED&I conversations or practice. Yeah. I think there's this expectation of like, we're the creative people. It should be better than like banking and telecom and the restaurant industry. I don't know. Name any industry. And it's actually not better. It may be in some cases worse. I worked in a giant telecommunications company that had way more diversity than I'd ever experienced in any media company I'd worked in, Mm -hmm. in terms of the demographics of people. Now, at the leadership level, maybe not so much, but that's shifted as well. So there is this, I think, kind of this arrogance that we can come from in the creative industries because it is so public and so consumed. It's the Mm -hmm. media, it's entertainment. Like everybody participates in it, in whether you are a creator or not, everybody's consuming content. So there is this like perception, I think, from people who aren't in the industry that, well, it must be a utopia of some sort when it comes to this stuff. Now, obviously, we've learned there's been very many, there's been lots of public conversations on this from both Hollywood and within Canada that it's not as rosy as everybody likes to portray that maybe it is. And there are, of course, there's been amazing people that have like, you know, the Shonda Rhimes or my friend Jen Holness here in Canada, like the Mm -hmm. things that these people have done in raising up an industry with their perspectives. But it's still like we can name those people, right? Because there's hardly any of them. Sure. There's now maybe more than a handful that we can name, but Mm -hmm. still only within certain circles, Mm -hmm. I'm going to say. right, And that in these conversations, I think that we are still at the very beginning. And quite honestly, we've been complicit in our complacency when we talk about the entertainment industry. And I think that when we talk about those culture shifts, even, you know, the bigger culture shift before 2020 was in 2017 with Harvey Weinstein, and that we were able to come together as a collective throughout Canada to talk about, okay, code of conduct. But, you know, most recently I was on a panel and we were talking about what's happened in the last five years. And I can tell you from talking with film workers that there's an uptick to sexual harassment again Mm. in the workplace. And that, you know, it's constant that we're having to have the conversations, that things go underground when people get uncomfortable and these behaviors still occur. And so I think that when we talk about culture shift, we would be remiss not to talk about the backlash. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think we're seeing it not only 
stateside, but we see it in Canada as well, that when we talk about building in inclusive practices, that there are those roadblocks still and that there needs to be kind of this humility to the work that we're doing, that it's dynamic, that it's constant. But also what I've noticed, and just kind of shifting gears a little bit, is that over the past three years, the conversation around mental health and wellness, when we talk about workplace and creative industries, that it's still tied to what we're talking about around culture shift and inclusive practices. But our mental health, psychosocial health, that conversation's coming back, Mm -hmm. including human rights. And so... You have a workplace Mm -hmm. that has gone through growth and shift and the pandemic. How do you lead with that holistic kind of human focus in this work? Because to me, that's that intersectional lens that we're talking about. Yeah, you know, I I don't have a easy answer to that because it's I'm still on the journey, right? Because I think a lot of the conversations, especially in the workplace that we're having around mental health, the reality of the socioeconomic state of the world in cities like Vancouver and Toronto and what can, how people can live and climate change, all of these things are having real impacts for people. And at the same time, we're an organization that is there to serve and support creators in all different kinds of aspects. We're not a social services agency, but doesn't mean we don't hear things from people. So trying to support people in how do they manage when they're dealing with the public who are sometimes disappointed when they don't get a grant or they love you when they do, right? And there's always going to be these ups and downs in that work. For me and our organization right now, it is about, you know, really supporting the leaders and managers to, with better tools, conversations, workshops, development to support other people because it can't be done by just a leader in the organization who has the top job title or the executive level of people. That's right. And I think that that is a part of holding the culture shift that's happening, right? I think that the people who, the storytellers, the creatives that are getting the funding are also impacted by everything that you've just talked about when we talk about society and their own identity and wanting to tell stories. And I see how everything is so interconnected in that work and that for many organizations, and um, I'm seeing that even from film unions, having to really, you know, the members are asking for this. They are asking for a more human-centered, holistic, that intersectional lens in the support that they need Mm -hmm. as members in the advocacy, as well within different screen offices that have come into fruition over the last three years. Can you talk about that relationship with Creative BC, but also kind of broader? You know, we work with Indigenous Screen Office in Canada, I think was actually established in 2019, maybe even before, over the, that 2020 period, we now have a black screen office. We have a racial equity screen office. We have a disability screen office. We have labor unions. We have employers from independent producers to the studios. These are all people, sometimes on a daily basis, I have connections with almost one of them in one of those categories or one of those organizations because we cannot move forward without collaboration and that partnership. So sometimes it's like we're not the best organization to do this particular thing. 
the tricky part, or, you know, I don't know if that's the right word, but it's not, we can't just say, oh, we have an Indigenous screen office, so all our, you know, Indigenous questions and problems can just go over there. It's about understanding your role in, in it, your role in the, the system that we exist, first of all, but also what do we need to do to adapt our organizations? These are not just answers to issues and problems. They are part of the support system, but we're also their support system. And that it is a two-way thing. You know, if you have black questions, just go to the black screen office. Well, we should be able to actually answer those questions ourselves. We can learn in partnership, but there is also, and I hate saying things like a a seat at the table or, because it just sounds so condescending and patronizing to me, right? That, oh, we have a, you know, we've made room for you at the table because that just reminds me that you were deliberately excluding me from the table. Oh, yeah. That's right. Or, you know, I'm hearing language, this lingo or phrase around, oh, well, somebody's a diversity hire. Well, let's unpack that for a minute. And really, it's putting it on the person who's been hired that the only reason you were hired is because the color of your skin, because of any of, and there's a list of, you know, tokenistic pieces that can be there. When the reality is within many industries and including the creative industry that we have had exclusionary hiring practices for many, many years and that it's, the onus is on us who are doing the hiring to have that culture of accountability rather than putting it on somebody else. I've been told the only reason that I was hired because I was a a black woman by a peer, by a friend, same, you know, and it doesn't land well. I think that we have to be mindful of our language and the bias that's coming in there. I think that when we build and have this conversation around a culture of accountability, that it's ongoing what you're talking about, Mm. that this isn't something where I'm hearing more so language like, oh, well, I'm just so tired about talking about it. There's a fatigue around it. You know, I could bring this up, but there's a fatigue. Rather than understanding that this is kind of core values. And when you talk about accessibility, it makes me think about human rights. Mm -hmm. And that, again, when we're talking about an industry Mm -hmm. that is a workplace, when we talk about economics, that some of this is already written into what our responsibilities are within Canada, and then when we talk about that from province to province, that in our practices, there are laws that hold us accountable and that, you know, we can have these conversations. But I think that sometimes there's a mix that this is a nice to have, that equity and diversity is a nice to have, rather than the actual responsibility that we need to Mm -hmm. be doing this work. And we're held to a higher account based on human rights. And the impact of not doing that, the impact of discrimination, bullying and harassment means that there's an impact on our psychosocial health. And so I'm starting to bring that back into our conversations Mm -hmm. around building in this culture of accountability is these laws have actually been here for us to do this, right? And so I think that it is important for us to have these conversations, but to hold ourselves accountable, to not roll back and be complicit Mm -hmm. in that complacency. Yeah, the laws have been there, but the system exists still the way it does. Absolutely. So, you know, I guess what I'm hearing is it's a educating ourselves beyond the education, right? Actually practicing what it is. And that it is, there's things I didn't know that I've learned recently, that I'm like, oh, I haven't been doing that or I do that. And having those conversations with your teams and with your 
partners outside your own organizations is really important. And I think it's, I too have been told, like, you weren't the obvious choice, but, you know, we had to hire somebody different than we've hired before. So good timing for you. Lucky for you. Yeah. It's like, it's not luck. Like, I've worked hard. I have the experiences. I'm bringing a lot. Doesn't mean I know everything. Mm -hmm. But there is also this often being a minority in a room or in a industry and in a business, and I certainly have been, is you actually start to work, like do things bending over backwards internally more than maybe somebody else would who didn't come from your lived experience because that is how it's set up for you. Like you must do extra to prove yourself. You must be tougher. You And then if you're tougher, then it's like, oh, you're just like – a big B, you know, like mm-hmm. it is. So there's yeah. this sort you're, of like. You're told that you're intimidating, that yeah. you're aggressive and, you know, been there How well. dare you, right? Yeah. Like if you actually, and then you're like, okay, well, like, God, like I didn't mean it that way. And then you're, that doesn't go away, right? It's mm-hmm. always sort of there. Mm-hmm. But when you are in a environment where you feel that support, so you don't have to go to that place, it is different. Yeah. And I guess for me, it's, on a journey to try to support people to create a workplace like that. You're dealing with dozens of individuals from different experiences and you can't control other people's behaviors, but you can start to set a tone and support the development of other leaders, I think is really important. I think so. So I think that you know, there's this fear of open conflict. And so to do something differently is to be okay with conflict, to be able to navigate through it, that I may not have the answers, but, you know, let's find somebody that does, or what are those supports that we can put in? For me, this is, you know, naming some of how dominant culture plays out in our workplace, in our storytelling, in our funding. You know, we've had to look at all of this and it's not something that goes away, that that becomes the practice Often I'm talking about inclusive leadership practice. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about that from that external piece of it, that there's accountability, that there's empowerment, that yes, we're going to talk about what allyship looks like in our intercultural communication. And more often than not, I am now talking about and giving that skills building around conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. We're talking about emotional intelligence, that we're coming back to having these conversations around who we are. And how are we going to be together? And those are always constant. Mm -hmm. And it's part of relationship building. It's part of trust building that I think is really key in the work that we're doing. And as we talk about this creative industry shift and the culture shift that's happening, that a lot of that is at that core. But it's not lost on me as a racialized leader, as a woman, that you can sometimes even be put on this pedestal that you should know better because of your lived experience, and you can easily be put on a pedestal with that and then knocked off, that we're not allowed to be mediocre, mm-hmm. is what I hear sometimes that conversation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That that our own kind of learning experience is held, again, in that same way that when we talk about finding our voice and then being called that we're intimidating or aggressive, there can be that impact. I think that, you know, you talked about that complexity where There's that strength of being a leader and realizing when to let go. But there's also the complexity of being told that we are less than. And that can be done quite quietly, subversively, or quite explicit. And so that imposter syndrome 
30 years into my career, I'm recognizing that I have internalized some of that um, and that there's a real impact. But I'm also, you know, as a coach, talking with Black and Indigenous and racialized leaders, women, men, non-binary, queer folks, trans, that we're having these conversations in affinity space a little bit more around that impact and our own kind of internalized imposter syndrome that it's not lost on me that that is something that is meant to make us feel less than. Yeah, when we're already doing that to ourselves, I do think I should be better Mm. than the white guy who had my job before me or after me or whatever. Like there is that. So when somebody actually like identifies it to you, especially Mm -hmm. if it's a racialized person, you take it very personally because you're like, I know I should be better. And that is an internal conversation and struggle, right? Because that is part of the system that I have grown up in in business where it's like, well, I – because when you get there, you got you, you're not just better at like the actual your other job, like your job job of doing all the things you're supposed to do, but also at being the person of color that makes it the safest workplace for every person of color ever, and that's impossible, right? But doesn't mean that's not a core value and driving you to it, but trying to distinguish between, I guess, being realistic, being true to your values, but also knowing it, it's not a solo endeavor. And that's really what I've learned from peers, friends mm-hmm. who are in leadership positions who racialized and indigenous and black leaders have a very different experience mm-hmm. in this industry, in the creative industries. And that's based on my many conversations with the few of us that have job titles like CEO across the country that I live in. And so that sense of community and belonging with culture shift, do you intentionally build that community and is that community getting bigger? There is some intention to it. Like you do seek each other out. Is the community getting bigger is a good question. The community is, as Gen Xers, we are now in leadership position. Mm -hmm. We've been in the community. We just didn't have that CEO or executive director or VP title. Now that's where it's changing. Okay. Where there's more of us in the executive realms than we've always been there in the industries. We just didn't have that job. And now there's several of us who do. So where and when do we come together, mostly through informal networks of like, can you talk text message, right? Which we all know as soon as you get that, can you talk? You know, it's probably something like this. Yeah. In... And it's not always just dealing with things that are about race. No, no. Sometimes it's just like, I don't know, I just need to like talk to somebody about this like thing I'm dealing with internally or externally in your organization. But you just feel like you can have a different type of conversation with a colleague who has a lived experience closer to yours than than if they don't. Yeah, that is really, you know, something that is important for people who are wanting to lead and to know that building that peer support and mentorship, sometimes it can feel really competitive. And what I've found is that with the film industry folks, when we're having these conversations around how to lead inclusively, the biggest surprise that they have after a weekend retreat is the connections that they've built with each other. 
because it is so competitive. But that if we can shift that, and that mentorship goes both ways when we talk about intergenerational mentorship, I'm learning from folks younger than me all the time. I still say all of the wrong things when I'm trying to be hip and happening (laughs) because my 33-year-old will tell me that. But in that, I really am listening and learning and understanding that in culture shift, that this intergenerational mentorship is key to success, that if we can let go of which dominant culture has this competitive piece of it, that we can really start to build each other up. That is something that letting go of that competitiveness and having that peer support that is built in based on our lived experience, our shared understanding, the allyship. It's been many folks from different pathways that have created space for me to excel Mm -hmm. in what it is Mm -hmm. and to believe in the work that I do. People going to leadership, I would say for people who are like moving into more responsibility in their roles, leadership responsibility, it's hard. It's great. There's a lot of really cool things and things you get to do and connections. And when you see something build and thrive, it's amazing. But the day-to-day can be quite hard. Is the best difficult. Like, it's not unpleasant necessarily. Sometimes it is. (laughs) But it's just, it's work. And you have to, like, actually keep doing the work. And it doesn't actually end. So you really, that's really something to think about because it's not just the glory of like, I'm on this podcast and I get to go to this conference. Yes. And that is huge and amazing. But the actual day-to-day and the implementation implementation, Mm -hmm. and sometimes it can feel like a grind, but there is a payoff. Like there is a goal. And I think that's what what keeps you going, right? What keeps you going is the people around you, you see them developing, you see them thriving, you see the impact that your work is having. And you kind of have to come back to that sometimes because sometimes it's really hard to remember that because you're just like in it. And you're going to be in it again and again and again. How do you, as an individual, take care of yourself when we talk about leading and the complexities of that within, you know, where we're at in this time stamp of, you know, 2023, 2024? Are you purposeful? Are you about work-life integration and taking some of that time? Yeah. You know, it's easy to just be consumed by it all. And I think One of the big things I learned many years ago is when you can't keep yourself going, you find those around you who can do it, hold you up for a minute if that's what's needed. And I think it's through finding people in the work life, if you have the resources available to you, to be able to bring in that expertise and support to help develop and drive because you can't have all the answers. And I think that happens a lot. Again, you're the CEO. You got this job. You should know exactly what to do and everything. It's like, I know exactly who I'm going to call. That's That's actually a big part of it. That's exactly who I'm going to call to help us get through this or develop something or create something, whatever it is. Most of my downtime, like my friends and my family and that community of people don't have a connection to this industry. Even though I have a lot of friends because I've worked in this industry, who I see and we have 
lunches and we see each other in different cities and conferences and all of that kind of stuff, which is amazing and great. But the core of it is actually people who don't have anything to do with this world. And there's something about that that is relaxing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, they might ask questions like, what's going on with the writer's strike? So there isn't that. Now, doesn't mean we're still not relating to each other on the experiences that we're having, you know, being a racialized person in the workplace or whatever, or talking about like global issues. Of course, all of that is happening in all the conversations. But it is trying to find the comfort in the nothingness sometimes, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, That's right. You know, I have a garden and I go to Pilates and I, you know, I, I, I'm traveling or whatever it is. It, it is all of those things that kind of are your balances of whether it's day-to-day -day personal responsibilities or work responsibilities. It's trying to find the space outside the responsibilities that I find is where, you know, I re-energize, I rejuice, I plug in or I plug out to plug in again, to That's be able to right. plug in again. Yeah. And it can be very purposeful, I think, being mindful with my clients and the coaching piece of it that, you know, I'll even dare them to take a five-day weekend at different times and then have to remind myself to do the same. Any words of wisdom in, you know, kind of just some of those pieces that for folks listening who may, and there's sometimes those times where we don't want to do what we do or, you know, questioning what it is that we got ourselves into in doing this work. And, you know, that sometimes that self-doubt mm -hmm. really comes in and just to empower. Yeah. Well, I've enjoyed this as well. And we have a lot of conversations usually related to a project we're working on together, which is in this world sometimes, but really having time together is really important. And I think that would be if you would call it advice or wisdom or whatever yeah. else, is like don't hesitate to reach out yeah. to a friend, a colleague, somebody in whatever industry you're in or business or point in your career. People are there for you, mm -hmm. even though you don't think they are because you've never reached out to them. But people will call you back. They will make the time. You know who those people are. And it's not a failure to call and say, I'm struggling with something or I'm just not sure how to approach this situation. And I think that is what has served me well, is having that network and community of people in different aspects. And it's all kinds of people, former bosses, current colleagues, you know, coworkers, people I haven't seen in years and then you run into them and they, you run into them at a right time. It's like, wow, I was actually thinking about you about this X thing that I remember you dealt with something similar. So I would say don't try to like push yourself because I know I've been there to be able to know it all and to be able to because you should because you don't. You can't. It's impossible. So your community is there for you. Just remember that and seek them out. Wonderful. Thanks, Prem. Thank you. That was a conversation with Prem Gill, Creative BC's Chief Executive Officer. If you want to learn more about Prem, Creative BC, or how you can get funding for your creative project, check out our show notes for links. On the next episode of Narrative Shift, we sit down with director, photographer, and all-around creative Ella Cooper. She recounts the formation of Black Women Film Canada 
an organization she founded to show just how big of an influence we have in the Canadian film landscape. From there, we started a leadership program that brought together 40 black women. You know, we were on Metro Morning and everyone was just like, wow, who knew, you know? And I was thinking, come on, there's more than just 40. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Narrative Shift. This series is produced by me, the Elevate team, and Max Collins. I'm your host, Natasha Tony. Be well, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.